Welcome to the mini episode. If you're here, it's because you're interested in learning more about the actual cellular mechanisms of the arrhythmia torsade de pointe, or torsade de pointes. This version of the episode is directed at those with a little bit of scientific understanding of how the heart works. We're going to assume you know a little bit about cardiac action potentials and the cardiac depolarization cycle. This is a really content-heavy and jargon-heavy topic. So if you have no science background, or maybe even if you do, I will not be surprised if your eyes start to glaze over. For a more entertaining way to learn at least the cardiac action potentials, I recommend listening to the other mini-episode, where we explain all of this, but we use kind of a more fun story to really break down all the steps of cardiac depolarization and provide an easier way for people to remember the steps. It still might get a little complicated, and we don't go as in-depth into arrhythmia-propagating mechanisms, but it's at least a little more fun to listen to. However, if you found the other episodes maybe a little bit too simple, this could be the episode you're waiting for, where we're going to go more in-depth into the actual cellular mechanisms, the physiology, and the proposed theories for how torsades is propagated. So without further ado, let's jump in. This is the cardiac depolarization cycle and how loperamide or any potassium channel blocking agent can cause torsades. So if you think of your heartbeat like a light turning on, if it only ever turned on once, that would be a problem. We need it to be able to turn on, have a heartbeat, and then turn off again so that we can turn it back on and have a second heartbeat. And we do this by moving ions through the cell in very specific sequences, which lead to secondary cellular changes that cause cardiac contraction and the subsequent resetting up of the cellular machinery to contract again. Those ions are sodium, potassium, and calcium, and they move through the cell in a specific sequence. Before we understand how those move through the cell, we have to understand the cell's basic nature. Cardiac cells are polarized, and depolarizing them allows them to send their signal. Your cells have special pumps on their membranes called sodium-potassium ATPase pumps, and they use chemical energy in the form of ATP to move three sodium outside the cell and pump two potassium inside the cell. Three out, two in. This means that there is always more positively charged sodium outside the cell than there is positively charged potassium inside the cell. This relatively larger amount of positive charges outside the cell compared to the relatively smaller amount of positive charges inside the cell means that inside the cell there is less of a positive charge, or aka a relative negative charge. This is called the transmembrane potential. And since there's a negative relative charge, it means the cell has a charge or is polarized. For a ventricular myocyte, that charge is about negative 90 millivolts. In order to depolarize the cell, we let all the sodium, which is built up outside, flood into the cell and change that transmembrane potential back down to zero, meaning there's an equal amount of positive charges inside and outside the cell. So phase zero, or the first step of cardiac depolarization, is allowing sodium to follow its concentration gradient and flood back into the cell when sodium channels open up. This occurs when the myocyte receives a stimulus to open up the sodium channels. And as the sodium floods in, it actually raises the transmembrane potential from about negative 90 to about positive 10 millivolts. Now, the positively charged potassium in the cell was hanging out in part due to the large negative membrane potential. But now that that has been abolished by allowing sodium to flood into the cell, potassium follows its concentration gradient and floods out of the cell. This is phase one of the cardiac depolarization cycle, and it's the initial movement of potassium out of the cell. 
which is an outward flow of positive ions. Since no more sodium is coming in, we get a more negative charge in our cell because we have positive ions leaving, and we go down to about zero millivolts from positive 10. Another thing that occurs with a change of the transmembrane potential from a negative number to a more positive value is a conformational change in L-type calcium channels. They now open up, allowing calcium to flood into the cell. As calcium is flooding in and potassium is flooding out, the membrane potential remains at zero because positive charges are entering and exiting. Calcium moves to the ryanidine receptor and stimulates the sarcoplasmic reticulum to release calcium. This is called calcium-dependent calcium release, and it is phase two of the cardiac depolarization cycle. As calcium is released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, it binds to tropomyosin on top of the active actin binding site, which lets actin bind to myosin, create crossbridge formation, and signal for cardiac contraction. After these steps, the sodium channels are closed and the calcium currents are relatively small but potassium continues to leave the cell. So the predominant movement of ions is positive charges leaving the cell. And this is called phase three of the depolarization cycle, and it is repolarization, where the efflux of positive charges leads to a more negative membrane potential, and it's potassium dependent. Sodium-potassium ATPase pumps continue to pump sodium out of the cell and potassium in the cell, re-establishing the high amount of extracellular sodium and intracellular potassium that creates the transmembrane potential and allowing for the cycle to be repeated over and over. Now, there's two ways that loperamide actually affects the arrhythmogenicity of the heart based on prolongation of the action potential. So loperamide blocks the human ether-related agogo, or HERG, potassium inward rectifying channel. So during repolarization in phase three, that potassium efflux takes quite a bit longer. And when we look at the overall transmembrane potential, it has to do with the current of positively charged fl ions flowing in and the current of positively charged ions flowing out. Well, if you have a cell with a particularly strong calcium inward current, and you blockade your potassium efflux current, you can actually make the cell more positive again. And this can actually trigger an action potential. If the outward flow of potassium is so slow, such as in the presence of a potassium channel blocker, that the inward influx of calcium actually predominates, we can get a triggered action potential because we're becoming more positive in our transmembrane potential. And this is called an early after depolarization. And it functions as, well, a full depolarization that occurs during phase two or phase three of the cardiac action potential. And it's an ectopic beat that can spread a depolarizing signal. This is why there's even been some studies that hypothesize using calcium channel blockers to reduce the inward calcium flow and prevent early after depolarizations in torsade. This is also one of the proposed mechanisms of magnesium's efficacy in torsades. Magnesium, being a divalent cation, sort of takes the place of calcium at the cellular membrane and can reduce the inward flow of calcium, thus reducing the likelihood of getting an early after depolarization or reducing the amplitude of the early after depolarization. Now, some have suggested that early after depolarizations alone are not enough to propagate torsades. I've read some studies that suggest because torsades is so susceptible to electricity, it's unlikely to be purely from early after depolarizations, as making all the tissue refractory at once doesn't really affect an early after depolarization since it occurs during repolarization. It's more likely that a reentrant rhythm around an area of slowly repolarizing tissue propagates the depolarizing signal 
that was started from the early after depolarization. And since loperamide creates conditions where cells take longer to repolarize, it might create a heterogeneous field of ventricular tissue where some areas are in a refractory state for longer because of their prolonged repolarization. And when we have areas that are not able to conduct ions in the depolarizing action potential, we create substrate for reentrant rhythms. So loperamide increases the likelihood that we'll have substrate to conduct a reentrant rhythm. And reentrant rhythms are particularly susceptible to defibrillation, as making all the tissue refractory at once leads to termination of the rhythm. I'm not going to review reentrant rhythms because I think we covered them in the original episode. But basically, it's a self-propagating electrical depolarization signal that moves around in a ring around an area of non-conductive tissue, either because it's refractory due to being, having a prolonged repolarization phase or because it is dead tissue, like, say, in a myocardial infarction. Another proposed mechanism of torsades is that there are multiple ectopic pacemakers at a fixed width from each other so that they're beating off sync and not terminating each other's pacemaking activity. The pacemakers are likely re-entrant rhythms surrounding areas of tissue with prolonged repolarization and are thus refractory. And of course, loperamide prolongs repolarization, so it could create multiple heterogeneous areas of refractory tissue for which re-entrant rhythms can propagate around. And in electrical studies where they implant two different pacemakers at a given width, it has reliably produced the same waveform or twisting of points as torsades. Lastly, one other final hypothesis for how torsades could be propagating through the ventricle is called the spiral theory, where there's an area, maybe a cylinder, of repolarizing tissue that is going much slower than the rest of the ventricle, and you get a re-entrant rhythm that sort of spirals around this cylinder going up and down the heart, but also moving around the circumference of the cylinder. And the waves of depolarization that this sort of spiral effect sends out has been shown in computer models to create the twisting of points and torsades that we're so familiar with. I'm going to post a great article that reviews the possible propagation mechanisms of torsades and the physiologic theories behind it in the show notes of this episode. That's it for today's episode. I hope Maybe you learned a little bit about early after depolarizations or the types of mechanisms that propagate torsades. There's still a lot to know, but it was kind of fun chewing into some of the details. Don't forget to check out the other mini-episode, which takes these concepts and distills them down into a more entertaining way to listen, albeit still rather complicated. And, as always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow the show at whatever social media you use, at Lab Poison on Twitter. My Twitter is at EMPoisonFarmD. We have an Instagram, Talks underscore Talk, and you can always reach out to us at TalksTalk1 at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, Talkso, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye.